From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Do you ever have a day or a week that is just out of whack? It may be something small, maybe something large. It may be a small inconvenience. It may be an enormous trial. Well, this week, in our lives, we kind of had a little bit of both. But the first was related to a salt shaker and a gallon of milk. No joke. You know things are upside down and a little bit off in your day when you find a salt shaker in the refrigerator, a three-year-old maybe, and you find a gallon of milk downstairs in the basement outside the refrigerator, and it has rotted to the point where someone has noticed the smell. They just shouldn't be there, right? It's backwards. It's upside down. Well, in Jesus' kingdom, things are upside down, and upside down is actually right side up because we live in a fallen world. Here's what I mean by that. In the new realm of the new creation that was inaugurated when Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and the Spirit was sent at Pentecost, our entire life is flipped upside down. God's strength interlocks not with human strength and sufficiency, but with human weakness and pain. The pattern for joy and growth in the Christian life is paradoxical. Life comes through death. Strength through weakness, comfort through affliction. That's the pattern of Jesus himself. In the prayer of the Valley of Vision, we learn the paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the exalted and the prideful will be humbled and the humble will be exalted, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite and repentant spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. It's all backwards from the world perspective, but it's the way things are in God's kingdom. In the world today, there are theological defects all around us. One of them is a Christless view of Christianity without a cross. 
The other is a lack of understanding of true discipleship. Both of those things are focused upon what happened on the cross and what that means for us as Christians. So that's what we're going to look at today. First, the cross of Jesus. Then, how does that make a difference in how we live? Jesus has just said he builds his church. Those who are called out of darkness into light, assembled by God by his grace. He builds his church by his word and spirit. We don't build it, he does. He uses means to do it. And the focus now for Peter, for the disciples, and for us is how that happens. Because Peter is not thinking the way Jesus is about to talk. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is real. But Peter doesn't know yet what that will mean for Christ and for him. Jesus says, It is necessary that me, who is Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, eternal God, equal with the Father in the Spirit, the Son of Man, it is necessary that he must suffer and die. He must go to Jerusalem, he says. When he's there, there will be groups of people among the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. They will cause him to suffer, and they will put him to death. The very people that should have been honoring and glorifying and worshiping the Lord who was promised throughout the Old Testament will kill him. They'll say, Savior's come to deliver us from Rome. Saviors come like David to be a warrior, to fight our battles. Saviors don't come to die in the prime of life. Saviors come to give us glory now, and they want nothing to do with him. Why does Jesus say this here? His face is turned to Jerusalem. He says it because this is not a prediction of a future event as much as it is a divine necessity. It's not that these things would happen. It's that they had to happen. The cross was not an accident. This is a part of the eternal covenant of redemption. This is the plan of the triune God from before the foundation of the world. That the Father so loves his people that he gives to his Son. That his Son comes to stand in the place of his people. To live his life vicariously for us, representing us, being our substitute. He must suffer. His entire life, loved ones, is one of suffering. He leaves the eternal glory with the Father. He's born a baby, not in a palace, but in a manger. Shepherds come and praise him, while many of his own people plot already to try to kill him. He suffers from day one to earn our salvation for us, to fulfill all righteousness in our place. And then he goes to a cross. He's crucified on that cross not for his sin. He's sinless. But for every one of the sins of every one of his people. He's mocked, he's scourged, he's flogged, he's physically beaten to the point where he's not able to carry the beam of the cross from the city up to the garbage dump on Golgotha. But the physical sufferings, as awful as they are, don't compare with the curse of God that he suffered in our place. Bearing the wrath and judgment of God 
as our substitute for us. Rejected, not because of his sin, he's sinless, but for the sins of his people. He who knew no sin is made sin for us by the sovereign will of God. This is planned before the foundation of the world. This is promised in the Bible. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words would be uttered by Jesus on the cross. Zechariah 9, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And the fifth gospel, Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. The gospel of Isaiah, 700 years before the coming of Christ. Is this the Christ you confess today, loved ones? The question for us is why did Jesus die on the cross? It's a divine necessity. It's promised in the scriptures. But what does that mean in terms of your own Christian life? What does that doctrine mean for how you live? Sinclair Ferguson says this, If this is what it takes to bring me the forgiveness of my sins, the sinless Son of God dying on the cross for me, how great must be my sins that need to be forgiven. And beyond that, not only my sins, but my sinful nature. That I am a sinner. It is deep within me. In the court of eternal justice, there is no way for sin to be forgiven other than the atoning death of the Son of God as I trust Him now by faith. Do you believe that, loved ones? That our sins go far deeper than an outward action, but it is our sinful heart that needs to be forgiven. The human heart resists this until we are humbled. The last thing we think we need is the sacrifice of God's Son on a bloody cross of Calvary to forgive the debts of my sin and to bring me into eternal fellowship with God. I think that's foolishness until God opens my eyes to see who I am and to see the greatness of his love and abounding grace to me. Why did Christ die on the cross? Not only that, but because if this is what God needs to do to bring me to himself, men and women, there can not possibly be any other way of coming to God than through faith in Jesus. The world says there's many ways to God, many different options. It's like a buffet. Choose what you want, the religion of your choice, Open it up and see what happens. But God's word says there is salvation in no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But loved ones, on the cross, that's not the end of Jesus. And the cross is not Jesus as a victim. In fact, Colossians tells us on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. He's crucified to defeat sin and Satan, and he's raised to triumph over death. Do you see here, Jesus is also saying it is a necessity that he be raised. He is sinless. Death has no hold on him. 
the father vindicates his son, the suffering servant, by raising him from the dead and crowning him with glory and honor. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus said that. Do you remember Luke 24? As he's talking to those disciples who are so forlorn and discouraged, they think their Messiah is dead. He's walking next to them. He says it was necessary, according to the Scriptures, that the Savior would suffer and on the third day rise again, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Their hearts burned within them. The Holy Spirit came to them, and they saw that Jesus is the risen Lord. The resurrection proves the truthfulness of Christianity. It proves that Jesus is who he says he is. It proves that you have a Savior and a future and a hope and a promise of resurrection grounded on him. How would Peter and the disciples respond to this? Jesus says he must suffer, he must die, he must rise. What does Peter say? He takes Jesus aside, he says, Far be it from you, Lord. He rebukes Christ. He uses the same word in the original Greek that Jesus used in Mark's gospel when he strictly commanded the disciples not to tell anyone about him. Why would Jesus not want people to tell others about him at this point? Precisely because of what Peter's doing. Because They did not get it. They didn't see that the Savior had to suffer and die. And if they go around telling people about the Savior, they're going to tell them about a false gospel, a false Jesus, without suffering, without the cross. Peter's incredulous. It must not happen. You're the Davidic Messiah. David lived to a ripe old age. How can you die when you're so young? Peter here is thinking like a Pharisee like a Sadducee. He doesn't understand the way of the cross. He thinks power and glory comes by action and taking charge. In other words, he's thinking like Satan. Now, as we read this, it's easy to be hard on Peter, but as one commentator says, we understand, right? If we were there, Jesus, who we loved, was telling us that he must suffer and die. The first impulsive reaction we would have would be what? No! Jesus, I love you! May that not happen! We are reminded, and I'm reminded of this often in my own life, that the fool opens his mouth and says the first thing that comes to his mind. Boy, the Lord convicts me there. A prayer, God, By your spirit, help me to take care not to speak in heat and in haste. Because when I do, I'm sinning. God, help me to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, teachable. Help me to set my mind on things above. That's what Peter's not doing. That's what we often don't do. We look down. We don't look up to Jesus. We don't look to the promise of the gospel. And Peter here is doing what Satan did in the temptation. Peter makes this great confession. Christ is the Son of God. His thinking is fleshly. He rebukes Jesus. He doesn't even think at all the resurrection. Do you notice that? 
He didn't listen. He didn't hear Jesus say, I will rise. I must rise. Neither did the disciples after the cross. They weren't remembering the resurrection. It wasn't on their minds at all. Peter goes right to the satanic strategy. A few moments earlier, Jesus called Peter a rock. Now he calls him a different kind of rock, a hindrance, a stumbling block. Get out of my way. Get behind me, Satan. Peter is a window of access to the devil by his thoughtless, hasty words. This is what Satan did in the wilderness in Matthew 4. He brought Jesus up and in some demonic way showed him the civilizations of the world. He said, Jesus, bow down to me. They're all yours. Why is that a temptation to Jesus? Because that's what he came for. Psalm 2, we saw it last week. He didn't just came to come to save our sinful souls from hell for himself, yes, but he came to get the world for himself. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Satan says, you can have that. Take the easy route. Crown, no cross. Bow down once, it's yours. That's what Peter is saying here. Why does Satan want to do that? Because he was there in the garden. When God said, Satan, your head will be crushed, I will send a Savior to defeat you. Genesis 3.15. Satan wants to prevent that climactic event of the cross by which he will be defeated and his head crushed. So throughout the New Testament, he is doing this. He is trying to prevent this cross from happening because he knows it will lead to his defeat. Peter is so foolish, but God is so gracious. Jesus rebukes Peter, but he does not cast Peter aside. He will break Peter. Peter will later deny Christ. Peter will be brought to repentance. Peter will be restored all by the grace of Jesus. And Peter will write the books of First and Second Peter, which speak of following Christ in his steps, which speak of Christ who suffered for us as an example, not only an example, but that we might understand, secondly, the life of the cross, the cost of discipleship. What does this mean for you? It means that Jesus calls you and I to a life of cross-bearing. It's tied in with who Jesus is, the Son of God. If he is not the Son of God, this makes no sense, and this is absolutely pointless. But because he is the Son of God, this is what he calls us to, Emmaus Road. To confess him as Lord is to know who he is, what he came to do, but it's more than that. The demons know that. It's to believe the truth of doctrine and the confessions that we love, but it's more than that. It means being identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection. One man says one of the blind spots of American Christianity is that we haven't learned to accept suffering as a part of discipleship. Physical health, physical appearance, convenience, those are idols in our culture and in our hearts. The health, wealth, false gospel says I shouldn't suffer, I shouldn't feel pain, things shouldn't be hard, I shouldn't have afflictions, and if I have them, it must be because God's mad at me or I've sinned. That is a lie from Satan. 
Jesus says, what happened to me will happen to you. Jesus doesn't call you to die to atone for sin. He did that. He accomplished it once for all. But he does call you by the Spirit to die to sin, and me as well. He loves you too much not to call you to this path. We should not think that being a Christian will spare us from life's worst pain. But being a Christian means additional sufferings as you follow Christ for the joy as you look to Jesus that you know awaits. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus says, come after me. The same phrase that he used in verse 23 when he told Peter to get behind me. Peter, get out of my way. Now, disciples, come after me. Verse 24 means, if you want to be counted as a disciple of Jesus, you must say once and for all, farewell to self, decisively accept pain, shame, and persecution for Christ's sake, not for our own, for his cause. Follow him and keep following him. Press on and keep pressing on by faith as his disciple. Come to Jesus and die, Emmaus wrote. There's no convenient Christianity. There's no easy street. His suffering is the pattern for our lives. C.S. Lewis was a child. Kids, he knows what it's like to have a toothache. He said he wouldn't want to tell mom and dad about his toothache unless it was very, very bad. Why? Because he knew he would get an aspirin that would bring him some relief, but he couldn't get what he wanted, the aspirin, without at the same time giving, getting something he didn't want. What was that, kids? A trip to the dentist in the morning. As this writer says, many people want to get what they want. Just get me to heaven. Just get me out of hell. Without suffering, without Christ, without knowing him by faith, personally, in the power of his resurrection and his grace to endure suffering. Deny yourself, Jesus says, not make yourself miserable, not Buddhist new age, not look within. Deny yourself, not, okay, I'm really tempted to have three cookies tonight, I will deny myself a third. That's not what he's saying. Deny yourself is a renouncing of self entirely. The DNA of sin is self and selfishness. Calvin says this, I should say it and stop the sermon. What else can you say? To deny yourself means to renounce your yearning to possess. To renounce your desire for power and control and being entitled. To renounce your desire for the favor and the praise of men. To renounce the seeking of human glory for the sake of seeking first the kingdom of God. It is the essence of living the Christian life. It is impossible apart from the Spirit. Dying to pride. Praying for the grace of humility. Dying to being turned in on me, loving me, pursuing me, but taking up my cross daily. The cross, loved ones, is not just a piece of jewelry like our culture looks at it as. In that day, it's the place of execution. When Jesus says, take up your cross, they would have very 
familiar visions, or, or pictures, not visions, but pictures of people with the cross beam on their shoulders, leaving Jerusalem, going to the garbage dump at Golgotha, suffering for hours, crying out in pain, and their bodies being tossed behind the cross and burned in a garbage dump. They would know that. They would see that. Take up your cross. As Johnny Erickson Tata says, a quadriplegic from a diving accident. To take your cross up is to go out and die. Loved ones, your cross is not being single. It's not being in a hard marriage. It's not a bad boss. It's not an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where we die to sin and live to God. Self-denial by God's grace, not giving in to that temptation to speak that harsh word in that moment, to blow up in anger, to lust in our hearts, to go on the internet and indulge in pornography, to be lazy at work and at school, to lie and steal the Ten Commandments, God's will for our lives, to break them brazenly, unrepentantly, unashamedly, hatefully, and evilly. God, give me grace to die to that sin, to love my spouse and serve her, not to harshly demand my way, to die to self in my use of time with my kids, with church members, with friends, with coworkers. Give me grace to say, not my will, but your will be done. That's what this is. God, help me to die to my selfish desire of my consuming self-will, to die to having my own way. We don't wake up thinking this way. Nobody will be in heaven singing Frank Sinatra's song, which is the number one song sung at funerals. I did it my way. Matthew 16, 24 is why many people don't become Christians. I love the idea of getting out of hell, but I don't want to stop relying on me. Jesus says, come after me and stop thinking about you. When Peter denied Jesus, he said what? I don't know that man. As one man says, that's what it means to learn to deny myself. To learn to say, I do not know, put in your name, in my name. To forget ourselves entirely. We can't confess Jesus is Lord unless we also say that we are not. With our lips, with our lives, in our hearts, you are not your own Christian. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus, body and soul, in life and in death. We think my body, my decision, my choice, my life, my schedule, my wants. And by nature, sin is my selfish desire to have what I want. God, help me to know that this comes by your Spirit. Helping to know Christ, he's the one who frees us from sin to live for him. You lose your life because you're united to him by faith. You're crucified with Christ. You don't live anymore, Christian. Galatians 2, Christ lives in you. Meaning, the life you now live in the flesh, you and I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Look to Christ. In becoming a man, he denied himself the glories of heaven. In fulfilling the law, he denied himself the pleasures of sin. In dying on the cross, he denied himself 
protection from suffering and pain, the justice and wrath of God, take up your cross. Does that mean suffering? It does. Suffering for naming Christ as your Savior. Bearing affliction, knowing that nothing happens to you by chance. God is your Father. He loves you. If you are afflicted, what's one temptation we have? Charnock said this. To disparage God's goodness in our affliction. Here's what he means. We disparage God's goodness when we send God's mercies where we would have God send our sins into the land of forgetfulness and where we write his benefits where he himself would write the names of the wicked in the dust. Beloved, in affliction, the temptation will come to disparage God's goodness and kindness. In affliction, we need to pray, God, help me to trust you To know, as Emlet said just recently, not all trauma-induced suffering will be healed in this life. The body may still keep the score. Those who have suffered trauma, who know Jesus, are destined, though, for much more. Glory is the end of the story. Christ wins. That gives you hope as you suffer. There's no dark corner in your human experience where Christ has not gone. Every trial comes from a loving Father who wants to make you and I more like his Son. You will suffer pain in any relationship. That's the nature of living life in a fallen world. Relationships are hard. But loved ones, If you're in Christ, there are no meaningless sufferings in your experience. God rejoices over you with singing. His heart is glad. He delights in you as his children. He has your good in mind every moment of every day and every trial and sadness, joy and affliction. And so follow him in obedience, grounded in the gospel. This obedience is not what we do to earn salvation. It's by remembering his love for us that we begin to hate sin more. How can I continue to pridefully demand my way and harshly speak in anger when Jesus died for that sin? When he loved me so much that he died for that so I would not remain in it? When he is so patient to me and gives me his spirit? Follow me, Jesus says. And now he says, here are the reasons. Four, verses 25 to 27. Here is why you take up your cross and follow Jesus. Four, if you choose to affirm yourself rather than deny yourself, if you say no cross and no life of suffering for me, I will take the easy road. If you say, I don't want to obey Jesus, my life, my choice, if you are turned in on yourself and looking out for yourself and just doing, trying, to, trying to do everything you can to preserve yourself, you will lose your life. Oh, you might have the good life in this world. But he says, you will lose your life for eternity. He's speaking of hell, eternal judgment that we deserve. Here's the paradox. If we live constantly saying I'm not going to deny myself but save myself, our attempt to save ourselves will cause ourselves to be destroyed. 
To save your life is to lose it. To lose it for Christ's sake is to save it. Here's an example. Say you know someone living in adultery. What would Jesus say to them, this pastor says? He says, I think Jesus would say, how important is it for you to receive the forgiveness of sin and eternal life? Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Coming to Christ means repentance. It means counting the cost of discipleship and self-denial. Because if you're not willing to put a sword in that relationship and to deny the sinful pleasure your heart craves, you're not worthy to be my disciple. That's what he would say. End quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To know Christ. To rejoice in suffering because of the cross of Christ. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. It is the same way that we take up our cross and follow Jesus because we see the joy set before us. Verse 26. What will it profit you? You can have the whole world. Everything. Here's how one man puts it. Another, another quote. A person puts a gun to, to your head. He says to you right now, I will give you the spouse of your dreams, perfect kids, a dream house, a dream job, a perfect life of health. Perfect, perfect, perfect. A job you love, vacations wherever you want, whenever you want. In fact, you can just stop working. All vacation. Power, popularity, I will give that all to you right now. And then I will pull the trigger. This pastor says, do you take that deal? Of course not. That's a foolish deal. But people make that deal every day. You're dead. Trading what is permanent away to gain what is temporary. Forfeiting your soul. You have a soul that will never die. Don't grasp continually for more. The rhetorical answer to verse 26 is nothing. What will it profit you? To gain the whole world? To forfeit your soul for eternity? Nothing. An emperor in Western Europe named Charlemagne died in 814 A.D. 100 year, 180 years after he died, they opened his tomb. They saw treasures everywhere. And there was King Charlemagne seated on his throne with a scepter in his hand, a crown still on his skull, a bony finger resting on this text. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Beloved, for the Christian, when we deny ourselves, we become filled with the love of the Spirit. We begin to care about things that are eternal. God gives us grace to forgive each other, to experience a joy in Christ that none can imagine. Ferguson says, here's what Jesus says to Peter, his disciples, and us. If you want me as Christ, but you want to hold on to yourself, and you want to control everything in your life, and you want things to go as smoothly for you as possible, with this extra that Jesus, okay, yep, I got Jesus over here. To follow Christ is to embrace Jesus as a crucified Savior. 
which means you will face suffering. You can't have, and I can't have our hands full of all that we foolishly think will make us happy in this life and also hold on to Christ at the same time. Ferguson says, as you hold on to Christ with both hands, everything drops out of those hands. And Jesus fills them in a new way with himself. If you don't suffer with Christ, if I don't suffer with Christ, we won't reign with Christ, Romans 8. Jesus concludes in verse 27. There will be a judgment day. There will be a day when the mall is no longer open. There will be a day when the constant social media feeds and buzzes are no more. Jesus will return suddenly, triumphantly, gloriously, victoriously, not as a suffering Savior, not born in a manger, not going to a cross, but as a victorious warrior with a sword, coming in judgment to the wicked, coming in salvation for all of his people. The sky will be rolled back as a scroll, Revelation 6. He will return. All those who have been ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of. All those who said, I reject Christ, I want the world now, will find that they have gained the world for a time and have lost their very soul. We are judged not on our works. The basis for our justification before God is the imputed righteousness of Christ. But at the final judgment, we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted before God. We have heard Jesus' words, Emmaus wrote, what will it be for you and me? Gain the world or lose your soul? That's it. There's no in between. Today is the day to decide. Now is the time of salvation. Do you know Christ in this way, in his sufferings? You say, well, I struggle. If you say that, that's a sign of his grace in you. His grace is superabounding. He came to die for those times when we don't deny ourselves. And he gives us his spirit to live with courage and boldness, grace and truth, mercy and love by looking to him. Lift up your eyes to Christ, Emmaus Road. From him and his grace alone comes the spirit of God that will help you endure. Press on and keep standing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's, resp let's respond with joy.